This morning, the subject I want to talk to you about is walking through suffering. So I'd like to share a little bit of a personal story along with the word. But first, I'd like to pray. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, I just ask this morning that your Holy Spirit would come and stir us up in our faith. Stir us up in our knowledge that you are good, even when circumstances are not good. God, we need you this morning, Lord. We want you this morning, Jesus. We invite you to be here with us. In your wonderful name, amen. Okay, so if you have your Bibles or your phones, we're going to look at John chapter 9. And it will be up on the screen. This is the story of the blind man that Jesus heals. Verses 1 to 7. As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man born blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned that this, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground. He made some mud with his saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Pretty awesome story, pretty strange story, how Jesus spat in the ground and made some mud. First, we're going to look at a slide of the pool of Siloam today. So they only just found this pool in 2004. They were digging for a drain and came across a hard stone in the dirt. And the archaeologists found the pool of Siloam, and it's about two rugby fields big, so it's pretty massive. The next slide is a model of Jerusalem in Jesus' time. So we can see the pool of Siloam down the bottom, and then the path leads all the way up to the temple. So the previous chapter, chapter 8, Jesus is just leaving the temple. So somewhere along this path, he comes across the man born blind. It's about 700 metres, they say, from the temple to the pool. So they come across the man born blind. And the thinking of the day was that if you had a disability, especially if you were born from birth, they thought it came from either your parents or maybe something you did in the womb. Yeah, so, it's, so that was the thinking of the time. Hey, Pastor Paul's got a sore leg and a cold. I wonder what he's been up to. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> Jesus said it wasn't this man's sin, but it was done so that the works of God could be revealed, as is the case with Pastor Paul. Hey, Pastor Paul. So after reading this story, I have two questions. Where actually does suffering come from? And when we are suffering, how do we display the works of God in our life? The next picture up here is a picture of Lincoln and I. How handsome is that guy? How massive is that girl? Uh, you know, you know, ladies. So this is us. We're pregnant with our first baby. And a week later, we find ourselves in the car. Waters have broken. And contractions have started. And to make the story way more awesome, we get pulled over by a policeman. 
flashing lights and all, and Lincoln wasn't speeding. It just happened that the policeman knew him and thought it would be funny to pull him over. Are they allowed to do that, pull people over, just to have it yarn? Well, that happened, and I was sitting there, Lincoln, come on, and he's, he's outside talking away, having the time of his life. Unfortunately, as we got to the hospital, we see the next slide. Our baby had no heartbeat. So we found ourselves on our third wedding anniversary, standing where no parent wants to be, at the funeral of their baby, at the funeral of their child. The autopsy showed that our baby boy, Ezekiel, was perfect, but the fault was with me. A piece of my bag of waters had wrapped around the umbilical cord, cutting off blood circulation to the baby. We read the autopsy and the big words at the start, act of God. Act of God. I was thinking, but I'm like God's favourite child. If there was a teacher's pet of God, that would be me. Act of God. So that was my question, and that's what I've been working through. Where does suffering come from? First slide. Number one, suffering comes because we live in a fallen world. Everything that God created, he called good until sin entered the world. We all know the story. God tells Adam he can eat of anything in the Garden of Eden except for this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. There was no suffering in the Garden of Eden, but Satan tempted Eve into thinking that God was withholding something from her. And she took of the fruit, and so did Adam. And they found out about this knowledge of good and evil. Now, death, disease, decay, all this happens because now we live in a fallen world. Stuff just happens now. Number two, suffering is part of this falling world, but number two, it comes also from God's discipline. Just like a parent, God disciplines us for our good. I can remember as a young child knowing I could be naughty when mum was home because she only slapped me on the hand. Cunning, eh? When dad was home, though, we were all in line. Dad used to take us to the music room back when you're allowed to smack and, he, and we would dread that wooden spoon and he'd lay us across the knees. Music room, maybe because he loved the sound of it, I don't know, or maybe he could hide it with a drum beat. Uh, he was pretty kind-hearted. One time I told him that he didn't smack hard enough and laughed, and I'd never say that again. The next one was not too good. So Proverbs three eleven to 12. Do not despise the Lord's discipline, and do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. If I was to touch the hot stove... I would way rather a smack on the hand, painful at the time, instead of a burnt or scarred hand. If I was to run across the road, I would far rather a painful discipline than being run over and killed. Hebrews chapter 12, 9 to 11, it shows us a little bit more. God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it provides a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
In the Old Testament, whole nations would come under God's judgment for their wickedness. But in God's mercy, he always sent a warning. If the people repented, they would be spared. But if they didn't heed God's warning, he would have to deal with them. But I love this verse in Amos chapter 3, verse 7. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. For nations and for us, obedience brings blessing, but disobedience brings destruction. Do you remember the story of Jonah and the whale? He was asked to go to Nineveh with a warning that in 40 days they would receive some discipline from God for their wickedness. And Jonah runs away and and gets eaten by a whale and spat up on Nineveh's shores, and he has to give this message. Nineveh repents and fasts and prays, and God spares them, and this whole nation is revived, a a revival, but Jonah is still hacked off. He's angry because he hated the Ninevites. And he says to God, I know, he said, I knew that, If Nineveh repented, God would be gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Obedience brings blessing, but disobedience brings destruction. Number three, suffering comes through Satan's schemes. Jesus said that Satan was the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. And we all know that verse John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief only comes to steal, kill and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of sin over our lives. But when we sin, it's like we give Satan and his demons access back into our lives. If we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, we all know this one as well. Be alert and of sober mind. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That word enemy or adversary is also used for a prosecuting lawyer. And Revelation 12, 10, 12 says that Satan accuses us day and night before God. So he's, he's trying to find a way in. Look, God, this person did that. Look, God, this person did that. He's trying to find access into our life. And that brings us to our fourth area of where suffering comes from, and that's sin. This is our sin, our decisions, and also sin that is committed against us. Someone who's innocent can still suffer from someone's decisions. I know I've painted a picture of God so far as saying it's my way or the highway, but that's not the case. This is my Bible. It looks like a a purse, a wallet, so I'm hoping one day someone will steal it and maybe I'll see them in heaven because it's a Bible. But this word, this book, it it contains God's guidelines for our good. God's not a God who gives us rules because he wants this life to be boring. He actually wants us to succeed. And if heaven and hell didn't exist and this was the only life that we live, would you still live it 
by the Bible? My answer is definitely yes. The answers in this book are so good for us and living by these answers is what helps us to succeed. So let's look at the connection between sin and suffering. In John 5, Jesus heals a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. And later on, Jesus catches up with the guy and he says, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. I think that being paralyzed for 38 years is pretty bad. And Jesus said that if he was to carry on in sin, something worse may happen. These days, scientists are finding more connections between our sin and our physical health. Internal hurts that result from sin, like unforgiveness, bitterness, worry, guilt, shame, can manifest themselves as physical illnesses or mental illnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Have you ever read this chapter? It's amazing and scary at the same time. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you today, all these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord. But on the other hand, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, then all these curses will come on you and overtake you. So I have a list of the things, just a, just a, a small list, it's a bit scary. Disease, fever, inflammation, boils, tumours, festering sores, madness, blindness, and the confusion of mind, unsuccessfulness, scorching heat and drought, blight, mildew, enemies, robbery, oppression, war, and the list goes on. It's a serious warning about following this book. But when we do follow this book, we get blessings and we get prosperity and we live well. God loves us. He is good. The principal of Auckland Boys Grammar School was on the news recently because he's introduced into his school teaching on pornography and healthy relationships. He was researching the link between mental health and youth, and pornography was one of the leading causes of damage to young people's mental health. Even the world is recognizing that sin is not good for us. Ted Bundy, a serial killer in America, he allowed psychologist Dr. James Dobson to interview him just before he was executed in 1989. In that interview, Ted Bundy described the agony of his addiction to pornography and he reveals how his addiction to pornography grew and fueled the terrible crimes that he committed. And again, I want to acknowledge this morning that sometimes suffering comes to innocent people when they are sinned against. <clears throat> okay, it does get better, but we've just got one more area that suffering comes into our life and that's Family line sin. So our sin can have consequences for generations to come. Two weeks ago, Pastor Adrian talked about King Solomon's sin of idolatry and how that had consequences for his descendants. And as a result, the kingdom was stripped and split. So if we can remember the second of the Ten Commandments, we shall not bow down to idols. 
that one there. It talks about how idolatry has generational consequences for four generations. And these days, amongst lots of other things, it can look like false religions, witchcraft, or the occult. So I was pretty sure that I was pretty sweet. I had a good family line, and I know that Lincoln's family line is pretty mint. But I was thinking about mine and how many people actually are in four generations. So we've got our two parents, and then our four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, and then 16 great-great-grandparents. So out of this group of 30 people, if any of them has been involved in witchcraft or false religions or idol worship, then it could have consequences for us. So it's pretty scary and pretty real. Derek Prince, he's done heaps of research on the subject, and based on his experience in ministry, he has a list of areas that may indicate whether we are affected by a generational curse. So he goes, if you suffer from mental and emotional breakdown, repeated chronic sicknesses, especially without medical diagnosis, repeated miscarriages or related female problems, the breakdown of marriage, family alienation, continual financial insufficiency, especially when income appears sufficient, and if you are accident prone, So if something runs in your family, like people say, family violence runs in my family or addiction to alcohol runs in my family or this chronic illness runs in my family, there may be a generational curse at play. And if you think this affects you, we can um, pray for you after the service. But just a short uh, recap on what we need to do if we have a generational curse Derek Prince says that we need to repent, renounce, and release. So we need to acknowledge that Jesus' work on the cross is the basis for breaking our curses. So in Galatians, it says that he became the curse so that we could have the blessings of Abraham. So it's all through Jesus' death. And we need to confess our faith in Jesus and his death on the cross. So then we need to repent of any known and unknown sins that the Holy Spirit reveals, and we need to commit to obey to the Word of God. We need to renounce, which means we don't want to have anything to do with any work of the enemy, of the occult, of false religions. And we need to release ourselves in the name of Jesus, breaking every curse by the power of His blood and the finished work of the cross. Okay, so just to recap, we've got a little list up there of where sin um, and suffering, sorry, comes from. So number one, fallen world, God's discipline, Satan's schemes, sin, and family line sin. So now we need to address my second question. How do we display the works of God in our suffering? We're gonna look again at the blind man because he gives us a really good blueprint on how to walk through suffering by his actions and what he does. The first thing we see the blind man doing after his encounter with Jesus is trust, and that's number one. Trust that God is good. He knows what he's doing. Jesus spits in the ground and makes a little pile of mud. So blind people, they can still hear. So the blind man can hear Jesus. You know, what's that noise you make when you spit? Lan's got it, hokalugi, we used to call it when we were young. And blind people, they can still feel, so he can, he can feel this gritty, warm slime going on his eyes. 
Way to kick a man while he's down, Jesus, or so it seems. So this blind man, he has to trust what Jesus is doing. And for us, sometimes it looks like things are getting worse. When we cry out to God, God, please make this better, and it looks like it's getting worse. The blind man shows us that we still need to trust that Jesus knows what he's doing. Lincoln and I were on the way to the hospital. We're about to have our baby. And I knew that something was wrong because baby wasn't moving. I turned to Lincoln and I said, hey, Lincoln, worst case scenario, this baby dies. Will you still trust Jesus? He turned to me and without hesitation, he says, for sure. So just a side note for all you people who aren't married, it's important to find someone who trusts Jesus in all circumstances, whose faith is not going to be shaken and has a foundation in the goodness of God, a guy like I've got. It's such a helpful thing to have in times of trouble. And for all those people who are married, I encourage you to be that person for your spouse in times of trouble. So the next thing the blind man does is he has to get up. So this is what I picture this looking like. He's on the ground and he's blind, so he has to go like this. And to me that looks like worship. Raising your hands and still worshipping God, trusting that he is good even in your circumstance. So a man called Horatio Spafford, he wrote a cool song back in 1873, It Is Well With My Soul. And he had sent his wife and four daughters over to Europe from America. He had to stay behind because of business. Although the only thing is that his wife and his daughter's ship sunk and his daughters drowned. Only his wife survived. He had to sail from America to Europe to meet with his grieving wife. And as the ship passed by where his daughters died, he grabbed a pen and paper and he wrote this song. It is well with my soul. The next slide that's up there is Lincoln and I singing, It is well with my soul. Now, we didn't talk to each other at the start of the funeral service and say, hey, make sure you raise your hands. But we were just on the same page. It was really amazing. So this is us. When peace like a river attendeth my way and when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul if you know the song you can sing with me It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. There's this funny thing that happens when you trust Jesus in suffering. 
It still feels okay inside. It still feels like there's joy. It still feels like there's hope. The blind man is told to go. And my third point is keep walking and never give up. We walk by faith and not by sight. In the middle of our suffering, we don't often see the benefits until we get to the end and look back and we can see God's hand at work. We've just got to keep walking. Number four, display God's glory with your story. The blind man came home seeing. He was healed and he told everyone about it. Don't let what you go through be wasted. Ask God to use it and be amazed at what he does with it. Our boy Ezekiel was born so that the works of God could be displayed in his life and I am determined to make that a reality. Lincoln and I were lucky enough to get a glimpse of our boy in heaven through a dream that Lincoln's sister had. Angela was asleep at the time we lost our baby and she dreamt that she was in heaven with another baby boy called Caleb. Now Caleb had died 18 years ago, he was a stillborn and in her dream she was there introducing Ezekiel to his first cousin Caleb in heaven. Angela was woken up to be told that we'd just lost our baby and she remembered her dream. It's amazing, eh? God is amazing that he would give us that gift. So now I'd just like to show you a little video. You should know the guy that's in the video. Make someone extraordinary. Their abilities. Their talent. Or simply, their smile. When I first met Nick Vujicic, I knew I had just encountered someone extraordinary. From the moment he began to share his amazing story with me, I witnessed firsthand how God is using a man with no arms and no legs to be God's hands and his feet. My dad was saying that he was, you know, his head was next to my mum's head as uh, as I was being born, and he saw my shoulder and he just went pale. He was hoping my mum didn't see me because he saw that I had no right arm. And my dad had to leave the room and he couldn't believe what he saw and the doctor came in and my dad said my son he has no right arm. And he says no, your son has no arms or legs. And he said he nearly fell on the floor. He couldn't believe it. And the whole church was mourning, you know, like why would God let the pastor son be born that way and my mum at first she she didn't want to hold me. She didn't want to you know breastfeed me and all that um she just felt very uncomfortable for the first 4 months and it took them quite a while before they could trust in God that he didn't make a mistake that he didn't forget them or me Nick's parents gave their fear and even disappointment in their son's disability over to the Lord they chose to trust God and his promise that he had a plan and purpose a hope and a future for their son but as the years passed Nick on the other hand had many challenges trusting in a god 
that he felt gave him less. I challenged God. I said, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I won't probably have peace until you're in my heart, but I will not let you in my heart until you answer me why. Why did you take my arms and legs? Why didn't you give me what everybody else has? And I said, God, until you answer me that question, I will not serve you. And so I wanted to end it. If God wasn't going to end my pain, I was going to end it myself. So at age eight, I tried to drown myself in a bathtub of four inches of water. I told my mom and dad, I'm just going to relax in the bathtub. Can you put me in the bathtub? And uh, yeah, I turned over a couple times to see if I could do it. I couldn't do it. Um, the thought that stopped me from going through with it was the love for my parents. Because um, I, I love them so much and all they did was love me. And I thought to myself, if I actually went through with this, I pictured my funeral, I pictured my parents, and also was guilt on their shoulders that they couldn't have done more. That would be the last time Nick would attempt suicide, but it wouldn't be the last time he would come face to face with those deep issues that made him want to end the pain. Then one day, Nick's mother had him read an article about a severely disabled man. And that man's story made a huge impact on Nick. <laughs> I have a choice to either be angry at God for what I don't have or be thankful for what I do have. And my mom, she said, Nick, God's going to use you. I don't know how, I don't know when, but God's going to use you. And those seeds started penetrating in my heart. And that's when I started seeing that there is no point in being complete on the outside when you're broken on the inside. And I found out that God can heal you without changing a circumstance. I gave my life to Jesus Christ when I read John 9 at age 15, where a man was coming through a village and a man, um, this, this blind man from birth, Jesus saw him. People said, why was this man born that way? Jesus said it was done so that the works of God may be revealed through him. And in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, it says, all scripture is God breathed. And I believe God breathed in me life and faith. This faith came over me. This peace came over me. And I felt like God answered my question. And what Lord, was the question and what was the answer? The question was why? Why did you make me this way? And the answer was, do you trust me? That's the question. And when you say yes to that question, nothing else matters. But what was it specifically for you that made you say, Lord, I'm going to trust your word because I know it's true. I'm going to trust you even if I don't know what you have in store for me tomorrow. Right. Because there was nothing else I could find. There was nothing else that could give me peace. I knew arms and legs wouldn't give me peace anyway, arms and legs alone. Um, I needed to know the truth of who I am, why I'm here, and where I'm going when I'm not here. And I haven't found that truth anywhere else but in Jesus Christ. I had a gift that I had prepared to give my midwife, thanking her for her help. And she didn't want the gift. She said I'd already given her a gift, and that was the gift of faith. She had been watching our walk, and she had been watching our trust. But I insisted that she have this gift and as she opened the wrapping paper, she started to cry. She realized that the gift was a Bible. Because of Ezekiel, there might be one extra person in heaven. We've got two kids now. 
when I was pregnant with Leah, I had to be under an obstetrician. And she said that she was really sorry for what we'd been through, but she'd heard about our faith, and our faith had touched her heart too. When we do it by the book, people see us and people see God through us. We've just got one more slide I want to show you, and it's the contrast between heaven and hell. When we reach our destination, when we reach heaven, our faith will be turned to sight. We won't be blind anymore. We'll see what Jesus was up to when we were in the middle of our suffering. There's no more suffering in heaven. Revelation 21.4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And we can compare that to hell. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. The blind man washed in the pool of Siloam and he came back seeing. He was healed. And the pool of Siloam for us is a picture of Jesus. Siloam means sent. God sent his son Jesus to die in our place. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross washes us clean, washes our sin away, and it takes us to say yes to Jesus' free gift of eternal life. People wonder why a good God would send people to a place like hell. But I think it's totally the other way around. I think that God has done everything for us so that we don't have to go there. He sent his son to die. The most ultimate act of love. I'm going to sing you guys a song. It's called Treasure in Heaven. So we, we felt grief, you know, and you know what grief is like. But God chose to feel grief when he sent his son to die for us. I hadn't thought a lot about heaven Or what it was like to lose someone Now I'm privileged to have the knowledge Of what it was like to give your son Treasure in heaven 
You gave up your sign for everyone. 